The sin and failure of mankind has put him in a difficult place. Our sin, the sin of man, has put every person, each of us, in a very difficult place. Man's sin caused man to fall. And he fell so low that he could not reach God. And this is seen in man's banishment from the Garden of Eden. Mankind was banished from the Garden. You will recall, you will remember in Genesis 3 that after the curse was levied upon the man, the woman, the snake, the, even the earth, that mankind was banished from the garden and cherubim with flaming sword was placed in front of the garden, blocking the way to the tree of life. God did not want man eating from the tree of life in his fallen state. So we were banished from the garden. The, the redemption plan of God is to bring men back to the garden. When you read the Bible from cover to cover, that you come away with this. If you do the flyover, Genesis, Revelation, you see this. It starts in a garden and ends in a garden. It starts in a garden where man is banished from and ends with the people of God brought back into paradise, into the garden of God. We were banished from the garden, but God wants, us to, wants to bring us back. And in right relationship with him, this is the whole thing. This is the whole thing. And ultimately, we partake of the tree of life. We, part, we are those partakers of the tree of life. So the banishment of man from the garden signifies and shows the extreme nature of our sin and what it, it has done. Man is, according to Paul in Ephesians, dead in his sins and separated from God and outside of paradise. God wants to bring us back to paradise. The question is, do you want to go to paradise? Do you want to go to paradise? People, I was on a, a flight last night, actually early this morning, and um, people flying into Orlando, and you can see I, as, as I boarded the plane, there was a family of four, mother, father, uh, two daughters with their little Disney backpacks and they're all ready. And just as we're entering into the plane, I'm just right behind them. There they were getting the selfie as they were off to Orlando, right? Off to vacation land. I believe it's in the heart of every person. It's in the heart of every man and woman and child to want to go to paradise. And God has, not that Orlando is paradise, but you get my illustration, okay? <laughs> Lived there for 17 years. You've talked to me after the service. Uh, but God wants to bring us back to paradise, amen? And in order, to, in order for God to bring mankind back into paradise, the offense of man's sins must be judged. The righteous judgment of God must be weighed out. The price of sin must be paid. God's plan of redemption is that he would judge sin, the sin of mankind, in a certain place, and that that judgment would be placed on a substitute. So in God's instructions for the tabernacle, all the way back in the book of Exodus, there are instructions for a place of judgment, a place where that judgment would happen. And that place, that place of judgment was where a substitute would receive the judgment of God for our sin. And so tonight we're going to talk about 
a place of judgment. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 27. Let's pick it up, verse 1. We're going to read all the way, all eight verses, okay? God said this, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make it, make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. And you shall make all its utensils of bronze. And you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. So God basically here, he's outlining a place of judgment. This is a place, this piece of of furniture, if you will, for the tabernacle is a place of judgment. The altar where the sacrifices were made, were to be made, was made of acacia wood. And it was overlaid with bronze. And we've talked about the acacia wood. We talked about the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? We talked about the Ark of the Covenant made, the, 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 the rectangular box made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold, and then the pure gold lid on it called the mercy seat. And that seat is God's throne. That was God's throne because this whole tent was made to be God's dwelling amongst his people. But now we come to the acacia, well, back up, the, the, the acacia wood and the gold in the Ark of the Covenant signified the dual nature of Christ. You have the wood, speaking of the humanity, the gold, the deity. You have the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. But then you come to the, the place of judgment. You come to the bronze altar. It's also made of acacia wood, seeking, uh, signifying the humanity of Christ, and then overlaid with bronze, not gold this time bronze. Whereas gold is a, a metal in the, in the Bible that speaks of deity and ultimately God. Bronze is a, is a metal that uh, is, a, is symbolic of judgment. You can go all the way through the Old Testament and you can, you can do the study and you can pull out all the things where bronze is that metal of judgment. Just one to kind of Get the wheel spinning real quick. The brazen serpent on a pole, the bronze serpent on a pole, was this same idea. The serpent on a pole overlaid with bronze, it, that, that was a picture of sin being judged, just as this place, the brazen altar, the bronze altar, was a place of judgment. And you see this, we could bring up other examples. So you have the brazen, the bronze altar, and this is going to be the place of of judgment. Now, it's basically a square table. It's a square table uh, about maybe yay high, depending upon how you, your, your uh, take on what a cubit is. And again, there's different ideas there. I take about an 18-inch cubit, but you know, there's other, there's other uh, measurements out there. But anyways, if we take that one, it's about yay high. And 
It's a, a square table, and it's got horns built into the four corners, overlaid with pure bronze. Now, if this bronze altar is going to, this bronze table, it's really a, like a table. If this bronze table is going to be the place of judgment, what is this saying? What is this saying that is needed for this? The one thing that every human being needs to approach God that none of us possesses is righteousness. And that righteousness cannot be found in ourselves. The Bible teaches us, declares to us that there's no one that's righteous. There's a few verses that we could utilize to look at this. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, Paul put it this way. You'll see it on the screen behind me. He says, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And so basically, Jews and Greeks, I mean, Jews and like everyone else, we're all under sin. There's nobody that's righteous. And that's why when you see these videos where people are going out, they're doing maybe some street evangelism, and or, or maybe it's one of these apologetic conferences where you know there's a couple atheists that come up to the microphone for the Q&A. Well, why would God send you know, basically good people to hell? And the answer to that question is, there are no good people. You know, according, if you're going to accept the, the biblical truth of the way that, that God is basically laying everything out in the Bible, there are no good people. If we were all good people, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross and, and basically show us that there was an extreme problem that existed. And that's what we're going to be celebrating this week. We're celebrating this week, basically the anecdote, the remedy that God carried out because it was such an extreme condition that we were all in. There was no one that's good. And so what the bronze altar signifies, signified for the people, was that there was something needed, righteousness, and that sin had to be judged. And that judgment, um, the bronze altar and its purpose also reveals that it would be a substitutionary sacrifice. Amen? Praise the Lord. We didn't build the bronze altar and God didn't have us put people up there, you know, and strap people to the horns and, you know, and, and, and do like, you know, mass human sacrifice and just, you know, I guess you can go down, I don't know where, Mexico City, Tenochtitlan, anybody been down there to the steps of the, these pyramids that are literally after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years just drenched with the blood of the sacrifices, of the human sacrifice. No, but God didn't want that. He, he said there's going to be a substitution. There's going to be a substitutionary sacrifice. So that's what this is all about, which brings us to another question. What was provided? God provided a system and a place where substitutionary sacrifice would be made on behalf of people. This system was the sacrificial system that's outlined in the book of Leviticus, and we will touch on some of that uh, in the weeks to come. But there's, so there's a system of sacrifice, there's a place, there's a place where that sacrifice would be made. And that place was the bronze altar. The place of sacrifice was called the bronze altar. It was located inside the outer courts of the tabernacle. So you had the tent of the tabernacle, and then you had the outer courts. And inside the outer courts, once you came in past the 
the fence line, for lack of a better way to say it, into the, into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first piece that you would come to was this bronze altar, this place of judgment. And, um, and the bronze altar it was used for these substitutionary sacrifices, for animal sacrifices, to atone for sins committed by God's people. The animal was brought and it was placed upon the altar. It was ultimately killed, the blood spilled, and that blood was shed. That blood of that animal was shed for, as a substitutionary sacrifice. Why? Why did this have to happen? I mean, I think that's a good question, especially for a 2019 audience that literally is going, okay, great, no human sacrifice, but why? Why the blood sacrifice? Because, it, look, if you read the book of Leviticus, you read the book of Exodus, for that matter, when you get into some of the later chapters where they're actually, like, anointing the, the tabernacle, and they go through that whole process, there's one chapter where it's just, like, it's a river of blood from, like, all the bulls and everything. That's, and there's blood placed upon every single thing to consecrate it, to, 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 to cleanse it, to make it holy. And so it's a really good question. Why? Why? the blood. Why the blood? Man, this is such a good question for today because in a lot of churches, songs about the blood of Jesus have even become scarce in some places. Um, and even so to the point where if you do a song about the blood of Jesus, it's kind of like, it's, it's really like what the Bible talks about, that offense, that stumbling block to the mind. The blood, the blood, oh, the blood of Jesus that takes away my sin. Yes, the blood. Okay, so let's talk about this. Why, why the blood? The principle is this. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, we'll see it up on the screen behind me. It says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So just to explain this, for for there to be a substitute, a sin uh, substitute, a sin sacrifice substitute, which, which remember from the garden, what was the, what was the command? The command was, you can eat of any, you can eat of any tree that is in the midst, uh, across the garden, right? But of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it. And in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul put it this way, the wages of sin is death. Okay, so that commandment is sure. If God's word can be trusted, that commandment is also rock solid, sure. And so there's a penalty for sin. There's a payment for sin. And the only way for that to be satisfied is with the blood of the guilty, in that sense, the blood of the guilty. But in God's system... There's going, to be a sacri- there's going to be a substitute. There's going to be a substitute. And in God's sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it was the substitute of an animal. For the poor, oftentimes a bird. For those of moderate socioeconomic standing, uh, maybe a, um, a, a goat or a lamb. And then, of course, there were the the bulls and, and, and heifers. So the judgment was due to the one making the sacrifice. 
the judgment was upon all the people, but now it's going to be placed upon the sacrifice on the place of judgment. The bronze altar points to Jesus' work of redemption for us. The bronze altar, the place of judgment, and the substitutionary sacrifice made in that place pointed forward pointed forward in time to an exact location and the perfect sacrifice that would be made on our behalf, a perfect sacrifice once and for all that would be made. And once this sacrifice was made, there would be no need for any other sacrifices. So Jesus' work points forward. The, pla- the, the bronze altar, the place of judgment, and the substitutionary sacrifice made in that place pointed forward to Jesus. The bronze altar's purpose points forward in time to Jesus and the redemption specifically of the cross. Jesus is the spotless substitutionary sacrifice made on the behalf of all the people of the world. He's that perfect sacrifice. And now he's going to take the sins of the world upon himself He's going to take the punishment for sin and he's going to die for man, for mankind. He spilled his blood. Now, a lot of writers don't like to use the word spilled because if you say spilled, and I've heard critique like it if it's in songs, he spilled the blood. And they don't like the word spilled because spilling something sounds like an accident, right? You can, okay. Let's just, okay, it's okay. It was spilled in that sense that it was poured out, not an accident, absolutely 100% on purpose. He spilled his blood, gave his life so that anyone who believes in him would not die. And Jesus took the judgment of God for our sins upon himself. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in chapter 53, the famous Isaiah 53. Coming down to verse 5, one of a handful of verses in Isaiah that are those famous verses. There's the Christmas ones, and then there's the Easter ones, right? (laughs) There's for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then there's Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The benefits of Jesus' sacrifice need to only be then appropriated to your life. This was accomplished. This that was foretold 800 years before Jesus walked the earth was accomplished when he came. He walked. He he was a perfect man. He was the God-man. He lived a perfect life. He became the perfect sin sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice. And that chastisement, that punishment that was due to us, that was upon us, it was placed upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And, and, And all of that is true. And that last line is true. And it can be true for you. And it can be true for every single person that you can be healed in Jesus' name. The benefit of a sacrifice 
appropriated to the people's lives. You see, it had to be appropriated. There are some that would teach, well, Jesus died on the cross and, 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 it, and it's an unlimited atonement. So it was, it was uh, not, not, not obviously those in the Calvinistic persuasion, you know, that would say it was a limited atonement, but those over here that might say it's an unlimited atonement, they say, look, Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. He, he made the perfect sin sacrifice. And just, you know, it's, 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 it's just given to everybody. I've actually, there's a, there's a theology out there that says that basically everyone's saved and we just need to go out and announce to them that they're saved, that they're part of the kingdom. Look, you're saved, Jesus paid the price. Problem with that, among many things, but the problem with that is that the Bible teaches that the, the substitutionary sacrifice had to be appropriated to the, per, to the person specifically. And this is seen actually in the Levitical system how the sacrifice was to be brought on that bronze altar. When you come to that bronze altar, that place of judgment, how it was done was very specific and it tells us this. The first thing is the animal would be presented for the sacrifice by the priest. And then the priest would do something very significant. After the presentation was made, the priest would put his hand upon the sacrifice. And what this was, was appropriating that sacrifice as a substitute for the specific people that the priest was representing. Amen? So the priest would place his hand on the sacrifice. The this appropriated the sacrifice to the people. The priests did this as representatives of the people of Israel before God. But in the antitype, you see the type, the type of the priesthood, the type of the whole the high priest, he would make that sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. In the antitype, what's that? The New Testament tells us that Jesus is our high priest. He is specifically our high priest. And he is the one that is, is presenting himself, not only as the high priest, but as the, as the lamb. And then that sacrifice must be specifically appropriated to your life. There's a story in the Gospels that I think very interesting where a woman who is been, has been sick for many, many years with, we don't have an exact description of this problem, but we, we've known it historically as the, the woman with the issue of blood, right? Some type of a blood situation, some type of a disease. And she hears about Jesus and she knows that, that Jesus has healed and, and that Jesus is doing an incredible things. And she says in her mind, and I believe not just in her mind, but in her heart. She says in her mind and in her heart, she says, if I can just press through this crowd and I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be healed, right? And Jesus is in the crowd and it's just mashed full of people. You know, it's like a concert, you know? It's like a, it's like a concert, you know, and you're up by the stage and it just, how are you going to get through? This woman got through. <laughs> she was determined. There's a trick how you do that when, whenever you're in a general admission concert um, and you want to get up to the front. 
<clears throat> you just have, this is how you do it. You just go, hey, hey, we're coming. We're on our way. <laughs> and uh, it works, trust me. <clears throat> Some people are a little bit mad, but it does work. I've tried it. So she presses through. She presses through. And she touches Jesus. She touches the hem of the garment. And, and the power of God is that the power of Christ, the power of Jesus comes out of him and heals her so much so that she's healed and he literally says, who touched me? And the disciples are just like, you know, what are you kidding, Jesus? You're crazy. You know, look at this crowd. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone touched you. No, 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 no. Who touched me? And this incredible, I think, story, historical situation, but specific picture for us of this idea of the appropriation of the of touching Jesus, of, of coming to Christ, of touching that substitutionary sacrifice and allowing the power of God's uh, love and, and his, his will for you to be done. And so when the, Isaiah talks about by his stripes you are healed, and I've talked about this before, there's, there's a lot of people that will teach that, that specifically, you know, that, that's, you know, physical healing and all that, it's, I believe, because Peter references the passage specifically, and we'll get to it here in a second, that there's really a spiritual healing. So she reasoned in her head, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she reasoned correctly that she was healed. Now, she was healed physically. What Isaiah's talking about is when Jesus does all this, when he becomes the sacrifice, when he takes the chastisement, when he takes the punishment that was upon us, when he takes that upon himself, then we're going to be healed. If we come to Jesus, if we press through, if we press through and just reach out in faith, just like that woman did, we are healed. So Peter confirms. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, you'll see it on the screen. Speaking of Christ and the sacrifice that he gave, he says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Past tense, Peter speaking to the Christians. You were healed. You were healed. If you have accepted Christ, you've been healed. You've been brought to life. You've been brought back from the dead. You've been brought from death to life. It's an incredible, incredible thing. So to finish up the sacrifice, so the sacrifice would be presented, hands laid upon the sacrifice, then the sacrifice would be killed, the blood spilled and appropriated. If it was the day of the atonement, the high priest would literally take that, walk that all the way in to the, the mercy seat, into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle seven times on the mercy seat. And lastly, the animal would be burned. Now, there's just one last question in this whole thing. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go through and do everything that he did. Why did he have the Israelites build a tent out in the desert with all these kind of very strange instructions 
and to build a bronze altar with horns on it and, and so that sacrifices could be made. And why did Jesus then come in to the world and give himself as that sacrifice once and for all? The bronze altar was a table made with horns on its corners. The horns were used to keep the sacrifice tied down to the altar. Okay? So when the altar was presented, we went, just went through the procedure, right, of presenting the sacrifice. When the sacrifice was made, it was presented, but then, you know, if you had kind of an unruly lamb or whatever, you, you, you use those horns to tie the sacrifice down upon that altar. Why? Because it was a living sacrifice. Amen? It was always a living sacrifice. They didn't round up dead animals and, oh, bring, bring a dead animal for the sin. No, 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 it was a living sacrifice. In some cases, many cases, had to be tied down. Jesus, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, was taken into custody and he was bound. As the Apostle John records for us, John chapter 18, verse 12, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Bound him. He was bound. He was taken into custody. He was arrested. He was bound at that point. After, he was, after his arrest, Jesus was tried and sentenced to death by crucifixion. He was led out of the city to a place just outside the gates of Jerusalem to the north of the Temple Mount, on the same Temple Mount, the, the, the ridgeline of the Temple Mount, but just beyond the gates, to this place, to this very specific place called Golgotha the place of the skull. The mountain literally resembles a skull. If it is indeed the place that I've been to when visiting Israel, you can go to a place, they call it the garden tomb. You can see the face, you can see what looks like eye sockets, the bridge of the nose, the whole thing. I don't know if that's it or if that's just the formation of those particular rocks or whatever. I do believe, and I don't have time to get into this, but the reason the, the place was called that was because that was where the skull of Goliath was buried. Read it. Read it. After David killed Goliath, what did he do? He chopped his head off, and he carried the skull to Jerusalem. And this was the place. So when Jesus died on Golgotha, he was exacting, not only taking the punishment, but winning a victory over every one of our foes. Amen? Golgotha. We know the place by its Latin name. Calvary. Calvary, right? So you didn't know this, but like, it's actually Skull Chapel. <laughs> skull Chapel. We're going to do a special Halloween thing. And, um... <laughs> like, I, I never, you know, I would see people with skulls and stuff, and I was always kind of like, ah, I'm not, I'm not like a skull kind of a guy. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I would wear a skull, you know? But I mean, after kind of like realizing everything, I mean, I guess... You know? 
Jesus did some powerful work on a place, on a hill called the skull, the place of the skull. There at Calvary, Jesus was nailed to the cross. The Roman soldiers nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, and he was bound. He was bound at his arrest. He's bound at his crucifixion. He's bound in the place of the sacrifice. Through the piercings, he's completely bound. Matthew's gospel records an interesting exchange between those that passed by the cross and, 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 and thus passing by Jesus. The chief priests mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others, but look, himself he cannot save. Oh, he saved everybody, but look, he can't save himself. If he's the king of the Jews, if he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. This is what was said. We... We will believe you if you come down from the cross. We will believe you. Earlier when Jesus was arrested, Peter, Jesus' disciple, pulled his sword. Remember that? Remember in the garden? There is, just before that, Jesus actually said, sell your coat and get, get a sword. But then he said, when Peter pulled it out, hey, whoa, not now. <laughs> you know, there's a time for that, but not now. There's a time to defend yourself, but not now because this is the plan. This is the hour. This is the hour that has come for me to go, for me to, to go do what it is I've come into the world to do. And so when Peter pulled the sword, Jesus told Peter to put down his sword. And Jesus said, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? What was Jesus saying? Peter. Cute little sword. <laughs> it was like, you know, Crocodile Dundee, you know, and the guy's doing the whole thing with this knife, and he goes, oh, cute knife, you know, and he pulls out the machete. And Jesus kind of did an early Crocodile Dundee, you know, but it was Jesus of Nazareth, you know, style, where he's, Peter, put your cute little sword away. Because don't you know that I could pray right now to the Father and that he would send more than 12 legions of angels to my right hand, on my behalf. But this is all happening because this is what has to happen. This is going down. This is going to happen. I'm going to give my life. I'm laying my life down right now, Peter. It got me to thinking about 12 legions of angels. So you have to do the math. If you're a curious person, when Jesus says something like that, it sends you to the scrap piece of paper. Twelve legions of angels. Well, how many angels are in a legion? Most scholars believe 6,000 soldiers were in a legion of Roman soldiers. So Jesus could have called 72,000 angels to his side. More than, actually. Isn't that what he said? I believe he said more than. But 72,000? Hey. You got 72,000 angels and you're the son of God, you're in, good, you're, you're in good shape. You're in good shape, right? Reminds me of a particular verse from the Old Testament. 
And you want to talk about 72,000 angels. You want to talk about an army, 12 legions, 12 like de detachments, 12 troop detachments, battalions of angels, right? 72,000. There is a passage in 2 Kings. I'll throw the verse up on the screen. It's just kind of, I'm just pulling this out of, just so you can see this, okay? 2 Kings 19, verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 of the Assyrian army. What's that? One angel took out 185,000 of the Assyrian army. Okay, so let's just do the math here real quick. 72,000 can do some pretty good damage, right? He could have done that. He could have done that. So the question is, then what kept Jesus in custody? What kept him on the cross? Was it the ropes and the chains that bound him? What kept Jesus on the cross? Was it the nails that were piercing his hands and his feet? No, it was his love for us. He did all this. He spoke all this. He orchestrated all this in advance, came to earth, walked it out perfectly, and he did all of it for his great love. His love for you and me kept him on the cross. Brother, sister tonight, his love for you kept him on the cross. Just like the rope tied on those horns on that bronze altar kept that animal tied down to that table. The love of Christ kept him bound to the cross. His love for you and me kept him on the cross, and it can be seen. This can be seen by those thieves hanging with him. Remember, he was, he was killed between two thieves. He was crucified between two thieves. The, 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 the thieves gives, give us this picture. One thief tells Jesus to save himself. And, oh, and us. If you save yourself, save us too right? Save yourself to Jesus. The other asked Jesus to save him. How's that? After the mocking had stopped, this other thief looked over at Jesus and he said to him, he said, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. A salvation right there. <laughs> because Paul said it this way, if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be Say Romans 10, 9, and 10. Romans wrote, come on, people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what the thief actually said was, you're the Lord, 
and when you get through this on the other side, remember me. <laughs> so, so, so in other words, this isn't the end for you. So he, he confessed him in the Lord and he believed in the, in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So what did Jesus tell him? I'll have it on the screen for you. I love this verse. Luke 23, 43. Today, you will be with me in where? Paradise. In paradise. Oh, in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. When... Uh, my wife and I had taken a trip. It's kind of hard to believe that this was all the way back in, I don't even remember now, 05, 06, one of those years. How long ago is that? 13 years, maybe, yeah, 06. We wanted to go on a special, we always do things late, so it's like our 15th anniversary, and then we get around to the special thing on the 17th year, <laughs> you know? And then we just have our 25th anniversary, and I take Mary Jo to like Orlando for the night and then our boys are playing in a concert. So it wasn't exactly like this grand 25th anniversary deal. So, but you know, it's coming in two years. We'll be there. <laughs> in two years from now, we'll be gone somewhere and you'll know it's for our 25th. Amen. So we went to Hawaii. We have friends that live in Hawaii and they say, come on, you know, you got to come to Hawaii. So we came and we spent some time with them in Honolulu, and then we went over to Maui for four days. And we happened to be in Maui over the weekend, and so Sunday came around, we said, oh, well, I have this thing about being in church. Preaching or not preaching, I'm a firm believer. Be in church. It's it's a place where, you, you know, hey, if you don't want to come, don't come. It's, for, it's not for people who don't want to come. It's for people who know what's happening here. That where two or three are gathered, the power of the the Holy Spirit is present and and that there's something happening and God is lifted up and he's glorified and his word comes and fills our hearts in such a way that we're overflowed with the joy of the Lord and he is just rejoicing over us with gladness and then we're just rejoicing over one another and loving each other and eating, you know, a biscuit or something. I don't know, whatever we got tonight. Okay, so this is what's happening. So we go, to, we go to breakfast, we find this little place in Kihei, Maui, and then we just right up the road, Calvary Chapel, South Maui, right? Calvary Chapel, South Maui. So we go, beautiful service. They've got like canoes, those Hawaiian canoes hanging from the rafters and the whole, all of it, worship and the whole Hawaiian thing, you know, great. And then we went and visited. They had a little, you know, area where they had T-shirts. I said, oh, yeah, let me get a Calvary Chapel, South Maui T-shirt, you know? surfboard, you know, surfboard, Calvary Chapel, South Maui, you know, the whole thing. On the back of the shirt, this verse. Is it still up there? Or what happened to it? Put it up. On the back of the shirt. (laughs) Today, you will be with me in paradise. For Calvary Chapel, South Maui, quite literally, okay? But for all the rest of us, nonetheless, nonetheless, it's going to be true because if we circle all the way back to the beginning of this message, what was it about? It was about the fact that man was in paradise, but because of his sin, it separated him from God and he was cast out of paradise. 
but God didn't really want man to be separated from him. So he went out into the wilderness and pitched a tent. And he came down and he had a place called a bronze altar where substitutionary sacrifices were going to be made that were going to point forward 1,500 years to a place where Jesus Christ of Nazareth was going to walk the streets of Jerusalem and up a hill with a cross on his back to give his life on the cross for the sins of the world so that every single person could hear these words upon a confession of faith in him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The only question is, do you want to (laughs) go? Do you want to go? Now, I'm not saying right now, but why not? If you want to go, you need to confess Jesus as Lord. You need to believe that God has raised the Son from the dead. And you will be saved. Put your faith and hope and trust all of your life in him, and you will be saved. Thank God that he took our place at the place of judgment so that we could be free and we could live forever and ever and ever.